Sounds good. You're cool with it? All right, cool. Cheer. Your show. All right, let's do it. And we are live. What is up, everybody? And welcome to live stream, extra special live stream. This is a panel today, but if we're keeping track, we're at 116. Um, very, very excited to be getting this conversation going as we have a lot of different angles in the data on Kubernetes community. And one that we haven't talked about so much is the one that we're going to be talking about today is the business side, all right? As we say in the United States, although I'm not there, I'm in Spain, uh, if it doesn't make dollars, it doesn't make sense. I think it's a very, very important thing to keep in mind. And this is something that I'm also hoping we will get included as a conversation in our co-located uh, DOK Day event in KubeCon uh, on May 16th in, in Valencia, Spain. So not too far away from where I am. If you're interested in giving a talk, I just want to give our, uh, our link here for our, our CFP. So you can check that out. Um, and remember, we're open to all different kinds of content. But as long as it's following the data on Kubernetes guidelines that you'll see there in the, in the CFP. Um, so we've got this session today. Just for other upcoming sessions, we have an Ask Me Anything, an AMA session on Friday with Rick Vasquez, one of our strongest, uh, most veteran community members, um, who's opening up his time to for anybody, beginner, expert, doesn't matter, get your questions out there and get them answered. So we'll be doing that on Friday. You can see that on our meetup, um, on our meetup page. Other things that we've got going on, you can expect more content like this. Um, we will be having more conversations about the business side of, of data on Kubernetes. Very excited for the panel that we have today. We're waiting for our two extra special guests to be joining us. They'll be with us shortly. But one of the first people that I met when I got started in the data on Kubernetes community is the person who you have here with us right now. His name is Evan Powell. He is very well known in the data on Kubernetes space has been involved in many different cutting edge projects related to storage. It uh, doesn't really need much of an introduction, so I'd like him to do that. Evan, how are you doing? And you're joining us today with a little bit of a different hat on. Uh, can yes. you tell us about what you're doing right now? I, uh, yes, well, I am wearing the vest so I can be an investor, um, but uh, I, am, I am, what am I doing? So we exited Maya Data in the fall, which is the creator of the Open EBS project. Uh, these days, um, I'm really trying to be a friend to founders. Uh, that means sometimes writing small checks, um, but often just working with them, maybe even before they would speak to somebody like Primary VC, although we can ask Brian that uh, when, the, when the partners from Primary VC join. Um, and uh, I'm also really spending a lot of time on the open source side of uh, Web3. Uh, mostly to, to understand it, understand community building. But thanks for having me, Bart. Really excited about it. Um, yeah. No, it's really good. And, and, and you mentioned as well, too, you, the open source side of Web3. You seem to have a natural attraction to really innovative technologies that, that aren't necessarily, you know, at, at, in the, at household names, for, for, for lack of a better term. What is it about you in your career that's attracted you more towards the edge, if we want to call it that? Uh, that's a great question. Um, but uh, I, I would say just trying to anticipate what comes next, largely by front running real developers. That's mm. what I've, I've done uh, quite a bit of, and, and that's what got me over onto, onto Web3. A lot of folks that I really respect are, are over there trying to do some development on the open source side. But I see we have, I see we have Brian. Uh, Brian, uh, thank you so much for and, joining uh, us. Thanks so much, Brian. Uh, go ahead. Bert. No, no, you're good. You're good. Brian, uh, how are you doing? Good to have you with us. For folks that don't know you, can you just give us a little bit of background about yourself, how you got in the investment world, and, and also your, your experience with, with uh, projects related to data as well as Kubernetes? Sure, just to check in, who's, who's on the call here with us? Because it, like, it looks like it's the three of us and then one attendee. 
up. Then let me bump up our, let me bump, let's get Misha bumped up to a panelist so he can jump on screen and then all four of us will be here together. And who are we speaking this, to right now? This we're, stream's we're, on we're, we're, YouTube. We're streaming live on YouTube. Awesome, live on YouTube. Hi everybody yeah. on YouTube. Yeah, just a reminder uh, folks on YouTube, feel free to drop any questions you might have. You'll also have the link to our Slack if you wanna continue the conversation afterwards. Um, but please drop any questions you might have while we're talking and we'll get to them accordingly. So yeah, Brian, give us some background. Cool, quick background on me. Um, Two-time founder of venture-backed businesses. Prior to that, I was actually a high school teacher um, in Washington, DC. Um, so joined entre entrepreneurship and startup lands through a, a sort of unconventional, but often like sometimes that's how it goes, um, path. First two businesses were consumer, but um, learned a lot about tech stacks and tech trade-offs from 2010 through 2020 and saw incredible evolution of the types of questions that we were asking. Um, I became a VC a year and a half ago. Uh, I spend a lot of my time now on infrastructure related businesses and try to bring a perspective of, of uh, you know, like what's the business side for this technical business and love working with engineers to understand what has them excited um what tools they're using and why and currently working on a couple businesses that are both open source infrastructure businesses one around um one that's called plural which is live that is uh seeking to bring a, a single point of management for open source solutions for devops teams um that's plural.sh and then uh, another one that's really specifically around data and kubernetes and so um, learned about this discussion, thought it would be great to join. And then uh, that's, that's me real quick. Okay, good. I think from Plural, actually a few weeks ago, I got to meet Sam. Um, he's great. So we're actually, he's gonna be on a live stream with us in, in a month or so. Um, so anyway, very, very good company. Good choice, good. And also last but certainly not least, uh, thank you so much for joining us. Misha, can you just introduce yourself? Tell us about your background and, and what we can expect to hear from you today. Uh, yeah, sure. So yeah, my name is Misha Herskew. I work with Brian at Primary. My background, or my relevant background is I spent a couple of years as an engineer, and I also was a founder CEO of an ML platform focused on the medical imaging space, Envoy AI, which was acquired in 2018 by Terra Recon. Uh, I joined Primary about six months ago to work with Brian on looking for new businesses, and I've been focusing on open source projects and uh, like infrastructure plays. I've been, I'm, one of the companies that Brian mentioned is something I've been working on a little bit, and We'll see where the conversation goes, but I, I've spent a lot of time over the last six months doing customer discovery, customer development, and kind of looking for new startup ideas in this space, which I think is very focused on the business value of the data on Kubernetes space. So um, I've got maybe some advice and we'll kind of see where the conversation goes. Good, looking forward to it. Just for a little bit of context regarding this is that, you know, the data on Kubernetes community, we have over 25 companies as members and we've seen various members raising quite a bit of money um, through different rounds, through acquisitions, different things of that nature. And so you can you can take a look at the numbers from some of the companies such as uh, CockroachDB, uh, Airbyte, Yugabyte, Ondat, you know, the list goes on and on and on. We've actually made a, sort of an internal list of our on our own to see, well, you know, you follow the paper trail and there's obviously something that's going on here. So just to start that out, um, Evan, can you, can you tackle this one? Why is data on Kubernetes as a pattern attracting venture capital? What is it that, you know, the VCs are seeing in data on Kubernetes that makes them say, hey, there must be something going on here. I'll keep mine short because, uh, yeah, I, I'm, I, I think it's both the open source adoption dynamic, which we could unplug, and data. 
and uh, data tends to be sticky and valuable. So that's pretty damn high level, excuse my French there. But, um, but as such, you know, because the question always is, are you going to convert the customers? Well, when you're running, I don't know, an analytics pipe, or when you are part of an analytics pipeline at a Bloomberg or something like that, they're very likely to pay you, right? Um, if you are a somewhere else, not in the data pipeline, maybe they aren't. So I suppose those could be two drivers, but I'd be more interested in what Brian and Misha have to say, maybe on that one. Why, why is it hot, assuming it, uh, it is? I yeah. think, I think, um... I think the idea of, of data being the oil of the 21st century is a valuable lens to think about why there's so much interest in this space. There is a, there's, there's a, I think a pretty broad consensus that the volume of data that's being collected will continue rising at a dramatic pace and that it's potential to unlock incredible efficiencies, whether it's automation and robotics or um, better user experiences in terms of ambient computing, uh, more effective growth of the enterprise through marketing AI ML, like you name it, we are collecting more and more data, but collecting it and storing it is not enough to extract the value. And so there's been a lot of progress. You know, We couldn't be having the conversations we're having today without the level of efficiency we have on you know, pure infrastructure, like through public cloud providers, um, through companies like Snowflake. But driving actual tangible progress for a business absolutely requires being able to extract insight. And that's not hard. It's not hard to get the data clean. It's not hard to extract the data. It's not hard to then run models off of it and then to get the insights of that back into production one way or another. And so, um, that I think has, has led to like a, a sort of high level interest among uh, investors in the in the space, and also just seeing the growth that that you can look at in companies like Databricks or Data IQ or Data Robot, etc. Um, is you know it's proof is ultimately in the pudding, and and then I think another another angle on it that is partially to like what Evan was speaking to around like the edge. But like, and by the edge here, I just mean like the sort of frontier of what's next from a computing standpoint, not, not where, where computing is happening per se. Um, we're still going. There are still solutions that are needed for different types of infrastructure use cases. Um, thinking about security is a massive thing that requires looking at data, thinking about like a sort of almost a move to figuring out where does on-prem make sense for certain types of businesses, um, it, but with a fresh approach to doing so, um, serverless, there's like the list goes on and on, like still needing to build out the infrastructure to hold the data, but then also the capabilities for businesses to extract value from that data. Um, they feel like long, long-term trends, especially in the context of what is sure to be continued, um, you know, skyrocketing growth of data collection all right very good those are, those are those are some thoughts good 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 misha anything that you'd like to add to that yeah i there's one thought to add around why the valuations and just like the in the sizes of the rounds in this space have been high and like relative to, i guess relative to like arr um and 
because they've been extremely high. And I think that's because, and there's like, some really good research that's been put out there by a few different people, but there's a, um, if you have a strong open source community around a project uh, and you get wide adoption you, and you don't have that much revenue yet, but the adoption is very high and you kind of become a standard for how to do some part of the stack. And like, I think Airbyte is kind of experiencing this right now. Um, when revenue starts to grow, it can grow at just like an absurd rate. You can get, you can go from, you know, it's, it's maybe it's going from like, uh, like 1 million to a hundred million ARR happens in like a year or something. It's it's, you can, so I think VCs have kind of become like turned on to that pattern around open source projects in this space. And because of that, if you do see a project with promise, there are, there's really good reason to make a big bet and move fast and try to like win that, that piece of it. Good, good, good. I think in, in opening that up regarding open source is a common thing that, that we hear frequently is, well, how can you, what's the business model around open source? Like, how are you actually going to make money? Is, is it, is it, um, is it really viable? Is it people should be thinking about uh, alternative options? Evan, you've been in open source for quite some time and have advised, you know, have been involved in advising different companies, really, really taking this very seriously. Uh, how, how do you address that when people, when people approach the subject of, how do I monetize? You know, how am I, how am I going to build a model that's going to attract VCs that are going to be interested in investing in my company? Sure. And those are two related, but not identical questions, right? I mean, I, I, I think investors, savvy investors are, are looking for, and in data, for the reasons Brian talked about, you're going to tend to assume there's a very big TAM or addressable market uh, and so forth. And so there may be other reasons why you get attracted. The team itself, as an example, um, certainly at my stage, I'm looking for people that I want to really work with okay, who are smart. They may not have figured out the business model. I don't care. I'm, I'm a founder, a uh, friend of founders. Um, but in terms of uh, business model, there's also been a lot of, as Misha alluded to, there's, there's a lot more confidence. There's a lot more prior art in what may work. Um, and so from that standpoint, you almost have a menu. You don't just pick from a menu. You have to design it for your company. But there's a number of options that seem to have worked. So you know, the classic is it's all open source. You have some tooling over here that is a SaaS solution. You know, you, you marry those, or you know, I'm running it the whole thing as a managed service, is an example. But of course, it's all open source, so over here. But I can run it for you, it, or I'm partnering with the clouds, and maybe we're getting the clouds here. <laughs> Are we partnering with them? I, I did get uh, into a good debate years ago with a DevRel person who's quite sharp uh, from AWS. Um, I use the word strip mining. Uh, in the context of AWS's strategy, and they seem to take offense of that. Um, I don't. I don't know that that's uh, so. Anyway, so you you can. There's a number of open source related business models, but it begins with the adoption and hitting project market fit, as Misha said. You have that, and you're in data, and you've thought it through. You should be able to at least chart a path towards uh, revenue takeoff. I don't know if that helps. No, no, definitely so. With And I really liked how you mentioned the aspect of the importance of the team. And I, now I'd like to hear from Brian and, and Misha's when you're looking at companies, you know, a lot of these companies as well too, uh, one of the major things that, that, that the, you know, these rounds are used for is to find the, and acquire and retain um, the best talent. Regarding you know, looking at a good match with a team, what are things that you, that you look for, things that should stand out? So the companies wanna have that in mind if they're looking to have better contact with VC. Sure. Uh, just to maybe just, I got another comment about what Evan just said first, mm. uh, and then we'll hop to that. Great. Um, 
But I completely agree with, with the general sentiment there. You know, I, I don't think that people today are, you know, thinking first and foremost, like what is the, what is the monetization pathway um, with, a, with a high degree of skepticism? Because it's been proved out now again and again that there are powerful monetization engines that you can bring to bear for an open source business. Um, with the caveat, you need to be talking to the right investor. And if you're talking to an investor that you need to be educating about the potential for a viable business on open source, it's probably not the right investor to be talking to to get money from. And I see entrepreneurs all the time in all sorts of categories spinning their wheels, talking to the wrong, wrong type of investor, not just open source, but any area. If you're talking to an investor and they don't get your category, it's really hard for them to be value add. Um, and it's very unlikely that they get to yes. And so you want to try to focus your investor conversations with people who at least are like-minded. Um, that's so, so all that said, I think it's really important to think about business model because there are, there are, there are lots of examples of people who have gotten traction, uh, and haven't gotten to the point where there's a compelling business. And there are instances where people have given so much away and yet plan to do an open core model and then have a hard time pulling back from the community features. Mm -hmm. And so I, uh, one, one, one lens that I think is helpful is just like any features that drive adoption and a short time to value make free any features that are required for an enterprise of scale to be able to use safely use in a coordinated fashion use in a way that's that's deeply reliable you want to you want to think about holding them back so that there is a clear path to, to monetization the other thing i say is that it's not just open core anymore in terms of the strategies that people are using like that that if you have an a, a, a avenue to some form of usage-based billing, some type of cloud service where you're doing it for the, the end user in some way, that can be incredibly valuable. Um, and then it's business type specific. If you have a front-end solution that is gonna be exciting, if you're, you know, you've got 30,000 people using it, mm. your monetization should look really different than if you have a complex backend, really like enterprise-rich solution and you've got 30 companies using it like that can also be exciting. So it's like the people who really spend time in this space have the sort of discrimination to like know what they're looking for within different types of, um, of businesses. And then to kind of get back to your, your question Bart, around, around team, it's huge. I mean, it's, it's most investors, it's the, especially in the early stages, it's seed or pre-seed. It's the first thing that we look at. Um, and and there's a lot that we could talk about about what 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 we're looking for um it's a lot but the, I, I would say like fundamentally there's a raw drive to to create value um that that gets people excited um that you can pick up on in lots of different ways, um, how hungry people are to learn, how much they like go and figure out what their competitors are like, um, the caliber of people that they bring around them. It's, it's, a, it's incredibly hard. It's incredibly hard to, to sort of succeed at, at building a venture scale business. And you, if you're, if you wanted to go for it, you should really, you need, you need to be ready to,
just exert an incredible amount of hustle and drive to make it work. And that should come through in what you're doing in every single which way in the investor conversations too. So I, yeah, I think that yeah. the hustle really matters. And then relevant experiences are invaluable. If you, if you don't know the industry you're going after, the chances are that the VC you're talking to has more exposure to that industry. And if you're less less informed than they are and they're not learning things but they feel like they need to be educating you that's that's a that's a slippery slope to be in in the early days with uh with an investor conversation like you hustle said get... yeah go ahead no no go, go ahead finish, I, finish, I was going to summarize hustle and industry expertise yeah and and but like you said as well too getting the category right no one if it's not if it's not matching up then you know it's better to move on to somebody else but the, like you said, at the same time, you definitely want to have your homework done so that you're not going to someone who might end up having more industry knowledge than you. I think it's interesting, though, because as much and, and, and this is a common theme in a lot of our live streams is that as much as we're talking about, you know, deep tech, really innovative stuff, the human aspect is so strong in all of this in terms of the, the success of an organization. You can have great technology, but if you don't have the right people matching, it's going to get really, really ugly really quickly. Um, so I think great points that are mentioned there. As you said, there are different ways that you can pick up on that with feelers and radar and, and, other, and other elements. Um, but I think it's, it's definitely got to be at, at the core of any company's uh, strategy regarding how they're going to get themselves out there and, and be successful. Misha, anything that you'd like to add here regarding um, the business model side or the people matching side? Yeah, so I, I was just listening. I think, yeah, I mean, definitely completely agree with everything that Brian and Evan said. I think that um, I would... Talking about the founders, of course, the founding team is one of the most important parts of like, any seed investment or pre-seed investment. I think a lot of it is just not specific to open source or data or Kubernetes. Like most of the things we're looking at are the same as looking at founders just in any startup. You know, things like, is this person going to be able to raise money? Is this person going to be able to hire? Can this person sell track record? I think like, and there's tons of advice out there that we, we could go through it. Everyone probably has already heard, you know, what, what makes a good founder? I think in terms of specific things that Brian alluded to this, but I think I can, there's something to like say a little bit more. It's like, there's all the normal, there's all the normal stuff you need from a founder, but then for something in this space, you need uh, hopefully an understanding of open source go-to-market motions, which have to do with this business model. And then the other half is credibility in the specific problem in the community. I think it's something like 70%. If you look at only the top, if you look at like the top 50 open source companies, at least 70% of them were started by the people who started the open source project. So it's not, it's, it's unusual for someone who's not core to the project, who really has credibility with the community, who really understands the product to be able to build the company. Uh, it would be, it would, it's, not, it's not that it doesn't happen, but it's unusual. Stay um, in the game, makes sense. Yeah. yeah. So it's, it's just having a deep understanding of the problem, deep knowledge and credibility with the community. That's one whole half. And then you know, in maybe a more generalized understanding, how do you go to market with something that's open source, which is ties into the business models. I think Evan and Brian both also kind of said these things, but the, I think the framing that, or the framework that I've been reading about and thinking about is that there's been kind of three iterations of business models around open source, the original kind of support consulting Red Hat model, then the more like open core model, which is still very much alive. I mean, I guess they're, they're all alive, but the open, open, core, open core model, and then more recently, it's the hosted SaaS platform, which is, I think if you look at most of the large and fast growing open source based companies, most of their growth is driven by their cloud, uh, like their cloud offer. So I think anyone, if you're, if you're doing an open source infrastructure company, it's a new company uh, in 2022, 
I think what would be most normal, what, what people are almost expecting at this point is to see uh, some kind of uh, probably like utilization-based business model, you know, with a cloud, like, you know, like a hosted solution as opposed to something open core. Although all of these things still exist um, and all of them are, you know, I think as Brian said, there needs to be a matching between the business model, the pricing model, and the, what the product is doing and the, you know, what the market is. So all those things match, but things have definitely shifted more in the direction of uh, like SaaS products or, you know, uh, hosted by the company, even if it's completely open sourced. Uh, a lot of that also has to do with the buyer. If depending on who you're like the ICP customer is, um, a lot of like, you know, engineering managers, for example, would much rather, if it's, if something's not core to the business, they'd much rather someone else deal with it. So if that's, if that's, you know, you just kind of by talking to the customers, you figure out, is this something they want to host or is this something they want someone else to deal with? Good and stuff. just like, and just like, yeah, just like any other startup, it's knowing the customer really well. Since, uh, since you mentioned the cloud part, can we, can we uh, go a little bit further on this? Should open source companies be seeing, you know, cloud providers as massive competitors or a threat, or should they also be trying to turn that a little bit and maybe pivot towards considering them potential partners? What do you say? What do you think about that mission? That's a complicated topic. Uh, I just, I, I mean, I think we, yeah, we've all read about this. There's, there is definitely, I just read a great uh, article about this that used the term service wrapping when a, a cloud provider just, uh, and Brian actually is the one who sent me the article. Uh, <laughs> when uh, yeah, a cloud provider takes an open source project and literally just wraps a service around it and, and sells it. There's no question that, that they are competitive. I think we've seen some, some open source projects that have like some companies that are based on open source projects have now even like changed some of their like licensing terms. Like there's currently some, major like political motions going on around, around, I don't know how much to get into this, but around like what people are allowed to do with open source projects. Um, I'd say there is definitely opportunity for partnership as well. And there's uh, definitely competition. It might end up being some kind of co-opetition as, as you sometimes hear. Uh, it's a complicated topic that I think, um, yeah, I'm curious with what, what, what uh, Evan and Brian, what you guys think about it. But definitely there's both opportunities and you need to be thinking. You need to be thinking about what the cloud providers are going to do. Definitely, adoption of Kubernetes, people moving things on-prem, being hybrid cloud, wanting portability, wanting to avoid vendor lock-in. Like these are all arguments to do things on Kubernetes that you know are make it so that you have a competitive edge against a cloud provider. But again, these are definitely dynamics that any startup in the space are, is definitely thinking about. Good, I, good, good, I, good synopsis. I'll definitely want to check out that article too. Kind of reminds me of the Godfather quote, you know, keep your friends close and your enemies closer. And uh, but I want to hear from I want to hear from Brian and Evan about about what that what their take is on that too. Brian, go for it. Sure. Uh, I agree with everything that Misha just said. Um, I think that one of the things that's really dangerous about being reliant on the on the public cloud providers is the just just the ability to, for them to annihilate the business. Um, and that, that's a level of risk that is, is, uh, is pretty scary for a VC. You can spend years working on a particular business, putting more and more money into it for the founder. It's obviously way, way worse, but just from a, the VC perspective, if there's like, if there's not real defensibility in some way, shape or form with the public cloud providers built into your strategy, that's, I think, pretty concerning. Um, because there's a history of, of, of them doing that. I, I would say also that just to, to Misha's like 
on-prem and multi-cloud point. There's a lot of activity right now around serverless, around networking capability, around um, around on-prem that are that are really fruitful areas. Like Andreessen Horowitz did an interesting uh, post a while ago saying that there was over a trillion dollars in market value that is available through cloud repatriation, um, i.e. bringing your, your hosting back in-house in some way, shape, or form. Plural is in many ways betting on, on this trend of, of um, in the future, the, the competition will continue to, to, to exist in terms of hosting and infrastructure, just that the, 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 the three main cloud providers are not going to be able to stay innovative enough to, to be at the cutting edge of everything. Um, and Brian, Brian, I think it might, this is like a slight tangent. It might actually be worth, if it's okay, like a slight plural plug, just because it is a very interesting, it's a very interesting company that is directly like kind of helping with this problem. Yeah, it's trying, it's, it's essentially trying to make it easy for DevOps teams to um, manage their open source instead of ending up going to the public cloud providers to pay through the roof for managed services. And we think that the that the profit margin on the uh, the managed service layer within the public cloud providers is so um, exorbitant that you that even open source maintainers can monetize with Plural um, by by delivering whether it's open core features or SLA support capabilities. Um, through plural, as opposed to hoping that the public cloud providers don't eat your lunch or spend the years building out all the requirements of a of a of a cloud offering. Yeah, and so just yeah, quick, ahead, quickly on that, I'm not as close, of course, to plural, but it reminds me a little bit of the Arabite innovation around business model, right? Where it's us collectively on the open side, right? In the case of Airbyte, I think they basically enable you, your um, plugin creators or integration creators to monetize with the help of Airbyte. And again, this is secondhand. And similarly, I think the model um, that seems to be emerging is, you know, Band of Brothers-like, uh, where how can those of us who are more on the open source side collaborate to give actually a better total solution vis-a-vis -vis the cloud providers? Because otherwise they will FUD your customer to death, right? And to say, oh yeah, if you want uh, 18 to 100 next to choke, go with them. But you know, otherwise just trust AWS or whomever we put it all together. And companies like Plural kind of give you that sense that no, no, there's actually a best, there's a way to get the best of class solutions working together. And that's pretty exciting to me. Um, this ideally, you know, being a little bit idealistic, what we would like to see is those areas where there's natural economies of scale, like, you know, racking and stacking and doing, let's say storage at massive, massive scale or whatever, almost the layers below Kubernetes. Like, yeah, I, I don't know. I think we should be able to plug into those and decide whether to build our own data center or use those. But when it gets up into the value uh, and the workflow, human workflows, I think there's a lot of enterprises saying, no, I'm gonna use Kubernetes as my abstraction layer. And the, those I'm not gonna get locked in at that layer, right? And I'm gonna use the clouds as underlying pieces of commodity infrastructure. And if necessary, I'll use them for workflows up here. Um, so this emergence of models that are sort of banded brothers models that are 
providing an equal or better uh, workflow potentially, um, but retaining that open sourceness, I think could be pretty big. And I don't know. Yeah, I don't know if that's what drove Airbytes. You know, I've gone through their deck. I, I wasn't pitched it directly. I don't know, but it's it really resonated to me when I when I heard it from them. And I first incidentally plugged to you, Bart. I first it's heard right, about Airbyte yeah. right here, right? Mm-hmm. And it's like, wow, who are these seed guys? Yet another set of connectors. And I'm like, well, no, they really figured out open source, that adoption modality. They did a lot of things right, but their business model and how you partner with other open, other maintainers, as you said, Brian seems pretty freaking interesting to me uh, as well. To talk about that a little bit further, just from personal experience, meeting both uh, Michelle and Jean and also some of some of the other folks on the team is that going back to your point, um, Brian, about you know someone has credibility in the community and has real hunger and is going out there and looking at competitors. I can say that in the case of Airbyte, that it was just abundantly clear from the very beginning. And so their, their growth seems to be a good, a good sign that that was very much the case. Since we're, we, but we, you know, that's one side of, you know, the success stories, obviously for every company that we're seeing of, you know, getting these, these rounds and, uh, and acquisitions and, 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 you know, success stories, there are obviously a fair amount of companies that are not getting there. We've touched on this a little bit already about, you know, stuff related to the team, but what are some factors that can, can play a role in a company not getting that success and perhaps failing? Um, uh, Misha, can we start with you? Uh, yeah, sure. I think, I think not. I don't like the word failure around startups because success is like a black swan event catching lightning in a bottle. You know, as a, as a, as a VC, you're, you're seeing, there's a, you're seeing a lot of potential projects. We're always looking at projects. We're always looking at companies. I don't think it's failure if it doesn't work out. It's just, most of them are not going to be air, like an air, an Airbyte or, you know, any of these other companies that we've, that we've heard about. Um, I think there's so many things have to go right for something to take off. Uh, really missing any of the pieces can make it not work out. Like you need to, like if the community, if the community isn't healthy, isn't growing, I think that's a huge part. If, the, if you don't have the community, it's just not going to, it's not going to work out. If you don't, if you're not really solving the problem. If you haven't figured out a way, if you haven't, I mean, if you haven't gotten the right solution, I think there's, it's hard for me to, I mean, I'm, it's hard for me to pinpoint like this is the reason it fails is because like most of them are just not going to work out. I think ultimately though, it's going to be that you, you haven't for whatever, whatever reason, what has not happened is that, that there isn't some kind of flywheel of growth where everyone is easily using the product. Maybe it's time to value is too high. If as an engineer, you want to try, try something out and it just takes like, you know, hours or weeks to get it, you can get even like two weeks to get something set up. And then you just give up on the project. And a lot of people are giving up on a project, even if it is in a solving a real problem, then you're not going to have the same kind of growth. So I think it, it's, it's, it's kind of like all the inverse things as, as things that make it work out. Uh, but yeah, I think it's, the things that make it work out are getting the community right, solving a real problem, and from event in a, from a venture point of view, like doing it in a big enough market. Uh, yeah, I don't, I don't know. I'm curious what, what everyone else thinks. If there's like some more specific fail, failure modes, but I, I mean, I think- I'll hand off Brian, but uh, I don't. You're, I mean, you're living it. Um, I remember when I first learned that uh, power law distributions governed <laughs> venture. Uh, returns and it was sort of an eye-opening thing now decades ago but i don't know if everyone on the community gets gets what misha just said i mean it is a black swan unusual event and um so it's really important back to your point brian i mean as an entrepreneur you're you typically have a portfolio of you know one main asset it's what you're building right you have no diversity 
diversification. Uh, and you need to, I think it's important to have eyes open that, you know, the likelihood of you, um, so power law in the sense of, you know, all the returns come from the top 20% of companies and something like that, right? So um, for reasons beyond your control or because you, you know, got in an argument with your co-founder, ended up hating each other as opposed to working well together or whatever, the odds of you winning are not uh, just objectively, they're not, a, they're not as high as you might as you might think. So really thinking through, we always think of VCs, investors, really thinking through the category, really uh, before they invest. It's true, they are. And they have people like, you know, Brian and Misha thinking it through. But you as an entrepreneur ought to think it through. Like really think it through. This is years out of your life. You don't have diversification. And, um, you know, the odds of you hitting that one out of a thousand return are relatively low. So you better love it. You better love the people you're working with. You better love the kind of customers or community you're, you're selling to or collaborating with, you know, not to be new agey, but you better love the ride because uh, it's all, all important. Sorry, just to jump in there, but power law returns. That's, I don't think many of right. I, I also think there's, there's, a key, there's a key, like there's a key lesson in there that we talk about a lot, like Brian has brought this up a lot in my conversations with him, which is around intellectual honesty. I think when you start a company, you really want it to work out and it's easy, or you start a project, you really want to think everyone likes it. You really want to think it's important that it's going to grow. So it's just very important to keep your, like a lot of skepticism and keep digging in, like how are people using this? Why are people using this? If people are churning, like why are they churning? Like really keeping a very high degree of intellectual honesty uh, because yeah, it's, it's very easy for people to get kind of delusional as, and as an investor too, it's like, you like, I, I like, I really want something I'm working on to work out as well. And it's just important to always talk to people on the outside, take the outside view, like what is actually going on here? And is this the one that's going to win? Or is this going, is this growing very quickly? I think, I think the job of a VC is mostly, to, you know, you're looking for the signs that this is going to be the one, you know, across many, many companies um, as a founder, it's just even, yeah, it's, as Evan said, just stakes are even higher that you really have intellectual honesty and skepticism about what you're committing a lot of time to. Yeah. And while the emotional side of the passion and, and the love for the project is, is going to be part and parcel of it, you, like you said, you've got to find a way to, to, to maintain that realism and look for the indicators that, uh, that something's going well or not. Brian, what would you like to add? Brian, um, sorry, Brian. I'm like taking a lot of your sound bites just because. No, no, that's fine. That's fine. <laughs> I, I, would, I, I think that um, in the early days, it's, you know, a pre-seed or seed stage investor, you don't want to try to convince them that you have all the answers. You, you want to show that you have the stuff that it takes to get to the answers in the market that you're going after. Like we're, we're making bets on, on the individual and the market. We don't want to make a bet hoping that the individual is going to pivot away from the market. But if you don't demonstrate a wherewithal within your market and understand where the market is going and have like a sort of a strong opinion about what are some really important um, tailwinds that you're going to be building off of, that's concerning. Thinking that you already have the answer, also concerning. Like it's going to take rounds and rounds and rounds. I, I, the, the Airbnb journey, I think, is telling for all entrepreneurs their, their like core conviction um, around the sort of the future of travel and people's willingness to share their homes 
was spot on from the beginning, but they were bootstrapping by selling cereal boxes with different, um, like um, the, it was during the Obama McCain campaign and they were each selling cereal boxes with pictures of like Obama and McCain on the boxes or something like that. And like, that's just the hustle. And obviously they didn't have the formula there, right? Um, I actually spoke with a founder very recently. He has some interesting traction, um, great guy, but ultimately the business is gonna need to make a pretty significant shift from the market that it's in to the market that it needs to be in. Uh, a different kind of customer, um, different type of sale. And I, I, to me, I was, didn't get super excited because um, it's not because that the traction wasn't there or the, or anything like that. Because again, I think that the traction can take a long time and so the, like the black swan event, it, it comes from a lot of hustle and being in the right place at the right time and interacting with customers for, you know, and, and pivoting and adjusting and tweaking and all that. And so it's, it's nuanced, uh, around, especially at the seed stage. Um, that's super, right, that's, that's super interesting there. I think it's like, it's not that you have to decide to like give up or not, like whether you have, whether you like found the thing exactly right. It's not that you just find, uh, like, it's not like you just like find the idea that becomes a giant company. It's that you just, you know, that it's gonna, you know, that you're in a big market and you have the expertise and the passion. And you also understand that finding the right product, product, and right product, product market fit, it never happens just by accident. You don't just like stumble upon it. Instead, it's just a ton of hustle and grit and determination and, working toward it, pivoting around, talking to customers and being, uh, and being intellectually honest about like, is this the one or not yet? Like, is, did we find it yet? Or do we keep pivoting and keep looking? Yeah. Yeah. The, the um, I think another, another really important lens is, is around the tailwinds. Um, like Airbnb doesn't happen without the, the sharing economy. It just just doesn't happen. It doesn't matter how awesome the founders are. If if they're going against like where history is moving, it's super, super hard. And so back to the, the discussion on public cloud providers, like you, you gotta be really realistic about what what's happening with those with those um, with those businesses as you plot your course. So I have one other thing I was gonna say right there, Misha, um, about so market tailwinds. I forget, I'll probably come back to it. Sorry. Fine. I, I do want to note something from earlier about just the importance of Kubernetes given the strategic, yeah. given the strategic uh, like difficulties and just the strategic landscape with the public cloud providers. Uh, Kubernetes, I mean, just strategically, something that is important to note is we've got kind of service wrapped open source projects on say AWS, which are marked up exorbitantly you can use Kubernetes, and this is kind of what Plural is doing, still on AWS if you don't want to be on-prem. So you can still benefit from what AWS has. Like the, the kind of unfair advantage of the public cloud providers is that they have like secure, available, reliable hardware and like power and you know internet connectivity. The, the software isn't really what it's about. So you can save, if you're at scale, you can save a huge amount of money by instead of using a cloud, like a cloud service wrapped open source project, using it yourself, which you can, which Kubernetes helps you do on just like still, still on either managed Kubernetes or even on EC2 or something like that. So that's 
we may be seeing, and this kind of like one of the like tailwinds things to be thinking about is which which what what are like the major changes that are going on? Is are we going to see enterprises start shifting from like you know maybe still staying on public clouds, maybe repatriating to some on-prem or hybrid cloud, but it may be starting to shift more into like managing projects themselves on on Kubernetes, um, still on public clouds, but yeah, and that's that is what Plural is kind of helping with, and that's just one that's an example of how to kind of be looking at the big picture strategic changes and tailwinds in the industry. Just, and, yeah, just Kubernetes, a quick, Kubernetes is just core to that. Yeah, just a quick point that uh, uh, builds on that is, of course, Kubernetes is under the hood all over the place. I mean, if you're running a managed service and you don't want to be locked into cloud A or cloud B, instead of using you know some pre-Kubernetes means of spinning stuff up, et cetera, et cetera. Okay, yes, you're using probably Terraform as well. But uh, anyway, uh, you know, you, you're you using Kubernetes underneath. I mean, it, it is all over the place, right? So whether you're a SaaS provider or whatever, managed service provider, Kubernetes has enabled you to free yourself a bit from this lock-in. So my point to, to you, Bart, and to us in this community is basically, I mean, like MongoDB, right? Are they a data-owned Kubernetes company? I mean, they're running on Kubernetes, I can, you know, just like Datastax is, they may not be perceived, you know, you may not, you, you may just go straight to Atlas because I want, you know, MongoDB as a service. Um, but the that underlying wiring uh, was enabled by Kubernetes. Um, so yeah, it's a tail tailwind for sure and an enabler. Regarding, since we're kind of getting towards the, the end, regarding things that we can expect for the future, where do you see, you know, the trends, what are the, the trends, the indicators, Regarding investments in companies focused on data, regarding companies focused on, on Kubernetes, what do you think we can expect in the next few years? Um, we'll start with you, Brian. Um, I think back to, back to my comment from the beginning, I think that finding, um, driving biz, business value is gonna be key. And that requires a level of simplification oftentimes um, that is not always the stuff of like Kubernetes and data discussions. And so I, I think that like there's, there's already a lot of heat around trying to, you know, package and deliver in some way that's still relatively robust for, for DevOps teams, for data architects, for data scientists. I think that we are going to see a phase of solutions that are, building on top of all that infrastructure work that drives an even easier um, um, utilization of the technology by end business users. And so if that's the case, I think from a sort of, for people who have a passion for building for developers, then I think it's really important to be sure that what you're working on is not, um, is not too saturated right now because there's a lot out there already uh, and so you got to really feel like it's not like another version of what someone's done 10 times over right now, but it's got to be at the forefront and you want to like stress test your, your assumptions of how important it is, uh, with a little bit of a view of the market landscape, I think, because, and maybe this, this ties to the, the, the comment from earlier, like, it's not enough that a few people say they like it. That's obviously the case. You have to, you have to be part of a tailwind that's going to lead to like, a, an entire market wanting it. And for that to be the case, if there's already a huge amount of competition that's well-funded going in and around what you're doing, you gotta be really careful that what you have is differentiated enough to, to make it so that they're not gonna come after 
what you're doing over time. And I think that also goes back to the human factor in all this. You're generating interest. How do you channel that? How do you make sure that someone that's working on an open source project is well taken care of, that they have the right support? There is a big, big, big human investment that goes in that. And I don't know if uh, every company out there necessarily appreciates that in the same way. I would say that being the community space, we do see more and more companies looking to build, um, like I said, these very, you know, communities that deliver a meaningful experience and make people want to tell their friends that they should join as well. And so they end up doing, you know, the, the, the marketing and, and, and the expansion for those projects. And once again, we're going back to Airbyte. Um, and I will definitely be talking to, uh, to Sam from Plural about this on March 15th when we have him. Now I have lots of, lots of good anecdotes that I can bring up. Um, anything that you would like to add, uh, Evan and Anisha, about that, about trends, things we can expect in, in the coming years? I've got oh, just, one. oh, yeah, Evan, go ahead. Uh, sorry. I was just going to touch on two things that, uh, um, so for a, as I think Misha said, for an open source project um, or any piece of technology, you want to be able to get to the aha as quickly as possible, right? And so that, that, that already exists. But for the viewer or, you know, um, who might be becoming an entrepreneur, you too, given that you're going to bet on one idea typically at a time, you want to figure out how to iterate as fast as freaking possible. And there's lots of prior art that uh, Misha and Brian referred to, you know, lean startup, et cetera. But really thinking through how can, because when I did the analysis, I remember being like shocked, like, well, wait a minute, the, the curve, you know, tilting up in these projects sufficiently that they garner a large series A. Now this was two years ago. So now it's probably, anyway, the, the, it, it was like, like if you look at Kafka, Kafka was incubated in LinkedIn for quite a while or built in LinkedIn blah, 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 released. One of the great confluent, one of the great open source based businesses of all time, but it was like four years, MongoDB. So, so as an entrepreneur, from the time you start a project to the time that it's likely to attract, and again, I think Brian and Misha look earlier too, right? They actually help build companies, but you know, a top uh, investor like that, it may be years. So thinking through how you're gonna pull that forward through customer discovery, et cetera, maybe through some web three techniques, but that's another conversation. <laughs> Somehow to tighten that feedback loop as fast as possible is, is really, really critical. Um, and I think you're going to see from the sort of entrepreneur tooling perspective more and more of that. Um, yeah, Misha, I kind of uh, stepped on you. But... Yeah, no, I was, I was just going to add one thing. I think community is potentially becoming maybe the most important moat. So if, if, like, if a VC had to bet on what's next in some specific area, you, you might see them, you know, they'll be looking at like how active is this community? Like how many people are in the Slack? How many GitHub stars? Like this type of, how many, how many committers? I think because community is so important and that kind of like distributed innovation, distributed R&D uh, is so important as a competitive advantage in a moat, we'll probably see startups investing more and investing earlier in community. I think that's already happening, but it's probably probably here to stay. Especially like, like you could see a startup compete with like an AWS if they have a big enough community. And that's kind of interesting. Very in our world, so. do we care more about, uh, sorry, uh, contributors or um, sort of user community, um, or is that a false? I think I think the best I think the best companies have a lot of overlap between the users and the contributors. The best open source companies. So that's actually part of the reason why. I would say part of the that. reason why you see why why it's more like infrastructure and like 
it's developer as customer type projects that are the best companies in the space. I think it'll be interesting to see if that can change, but so far the most successful open source companies have a lot of overlap between the people who are contributing and the users. Yeah, I think that's just important to note, like for everyone to understand that like part of the strategy here is people paying people to be contributors. So it's not like people, I wouldn't want people to take away like, I gotta get people who are so gung-ho in the early days, they're gonna be contributors without any kind of serious incentive. Um, and so like, you know, the Cockroach Labs, MongoDB, all these businesses had lots of contributors who were on some form of the payroll, uh, which is not, there's nothing cynical about that. That's just like a reality that people who are wanting to compete in the space need to be aware of. Not to say that there's not also organic and pure, pure developer enthusiasm that leads to some contributions, but like to building out that core, there are people getting paid usually. Or often. That's, that's a really good point. And also just to, to get the question is, for anybody, user or contributor, what's in it for? What's in it for them? You know, why should they be here? Why are they going to give their time? And, and in some cases, it can be because of a monetary exchange, you know, uh, based on time. And in, and in other cases, like you said, everyone has a dream of just the the gung ho. I'll spend my weekends, you know, in your community and be working on this. We, you know, we all want that. Um, but to to get there takes time, sacrifice, you know, uh, trial and error. So anyway, very very good points. Any final thoughts before we wrap up, Evan? since you were kind of responsible for getting this together. No, I'd just say thanks to uh, Misha and Brian again. And um, I wasn't sure to what extent you wanted to talk about the other company that we know about, <laughs> but you're, uh, you're both doing uh, just based on my limited window into what you're doing, some really cool stuff. It's been a pleasure to, to get to know you. Uh, for entrepreneurs, um, you know, uh, this project market fit we've, we sort of alluded to, uh, but also check on, you know, you and your project fit, right? And, and are you really going to want to live in this uh, for X years? Do you have that credibility? The other thing I'd say is uh, when I, actually, I just helped found a company and then unfounded or I got out um, just because I realized that we weren't going to argue well. We weren't going to argue with intellectual honesty, right? Or disagree, didn't have to be an argument. So really, battle test your relationships as you're getting in uh, because um, yeah, you're, you're going to spend a lot of time with folks and it doesn't mean that they're wrong. You're right. Vice versa. It's more that do you actually mesh as a team and are you going to be able to be intellectually honest, make smart decisions because you're going to have to, um, and you're going to have to live with decisions potentially for years that you made with relatively limited information. And so how do you get to trust um, and, and candor as fast as possible is tricky. Very good. Very, thank you. Thank you, Evan. That was a great reflection. Misha, anything you'd like yeah. to add? Yeah. I think, I think there's a lot that's unique about open source and about, you know, focus, focus on the community, uh, you know, data on Kubernetes. There's a lot that's unique that people need to think about and know about. But when I think about this, I just think it's so much the same as every other startup and like all the startup knowledge out there. I think like, I mean, Brian, you, I'm sure you speak to this because you've looked at a lot of companies also just in like other spaces entirely. I think a lot of almost in, it can't be overstated how much these are the same as other software startups. Like while they do have different attributes and while you do need to be specific with what like the go-to-market motions and which investors you speak to and how you interact with customers, there are specifics that are different as there are with any business. But I think much more than people might uh, keep in mind, these are 
startups. These are software companies. Um, and a lot of the knowledge that's out there that you can pick up from like reading all the like well-known books and blogs and everything, a lot of that knowledge is still going to apply. Um, and, you know, finding, finding product market fit, find, building a team, building a culture, all these things still really do still apply. So these are startups. I think this has been a great conversation. Thanks so much, Bart, for having us on. It's great. Absolute pleasure. Look forward, looking very forward, uh, very much forward to, to more conversations of this nature. And I think it's interesting as much as, you know, the technological stuff is, is innovative, it's new, it's different. There are some core fundamental principles that, that Misha, you were, just, uh, you were just summarizing right there that still apply. And what Evan was saying too, and, and Brian, you mentioned previously, the human factor cannot be, uh, can, just cannot be missed. And, and finding a team that's going to work, you mentioned Evan, you know, having to make difficult decisions together, um, you're going to have rough times, you know, who do you want to be with, uh, when, when these, when things are a little bit tricky. So I think that's a very, very good way to finish. As always, we do like to finish while we've been talking, we have our amazing artist who's been creating a, an artistic rendition of the stuff that we're talking about. It's one of the unique things about the data on Kubernetes community. Um, so we get our sort of key takeaways here. I'll also be writing a summary on this on LinkedIn for folks who arrived late. Of course, we'll be sharing the live stream. One, thank you all so much for your time today. Really enjoyed the conversation. Looking uh, forward to more of these in the future. Uh, take care and, and best of luck with everything. Bye, everybody.